You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week we are in conversation with Gemma Bull and Tom Steinberg. Uh, now, Gemma and Tom have just written a book, and they came on to talk about that. It's called Modern Grant Making a guide for funders who believe better is possible. Um, and we'll talk lots about that today, but I should start by saying I thoroughly recommend the book. I definitely say it's worth going and getting your hands on a copy. It's lots of really interesting stuff in there and it's immensely readable. Um, and Gemma and Tom and I sat down a couple of weeks ago now for a really interesting chat about the book. Um, we talked uh, obviously about the, what the book focuses on and who it's aimed at, and particularly what makes it a bit different in the it's a book about philanthropy and grant making, but it's sort of aimed at the people who work in the field rather than necessarily those at the heads of organisations or kind of big donors. Um, we talked about some of the key themes in the book about humility and the need for humility in grant making and the need to sort of put aside funder ego. Linked to that we talked about what success should be understood as in grant making and also conversely what failure should be understood as and whether actually our current understanding of both those things is part of the problem when it comes to, to grant making practice at the moment. We talked about diversity, equity and inclusion uh, or the lack thereof in grant making uh, and whether there were things that could be done to kind of improve the grant making field on that score and kind of overcome some of the challenges that it faces. Uh, we also talked about power and privilege uh, and power dynamics and the need for grant makers to find ways of checking their privilege if they're genuinely going to dispense funding in a way that benefits communities. We talked about participatory methods and sort of participatory grant making, how effective those were, uh, whether they were applicable in sort of all uh, forms of grant making or whether they were just one tool in a wider toolbox. Um, and we also talked about some of the changes in funding practice that have happened during the pandemic and whether or not those will stick over the longer term. Um, so without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope you will too. And I will be back at the end for a bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. Uh, so I'm here with Tom Steinberg and Gemma Bull. Hi, both of you. Hello. Hi, Rodri. Hi, uh, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Um, and you are both here today as the authors of a new book um, that I've had uh, been very fortunate to have a, a look at and very much enjoyed so far. Uh, it's called Modern Grant Making, uh, a guide for funders who believe better is possible. Um, so best the, the best place to start is probably just to ask you both, you know, what drove you to write the book what you know do you think that is this just another book on philanthropy and is that something that the the world needs right now sure so thank, thanks for asking that great great question so there's actually two kind of very different motivations for writing the book so i'll, I'll start off talking about the first one uh, and actually just give a very quick story because i think that helps to understand why we wrote it and perhaps why it's a little bit different from some of the other books that are out there on the market at the moment so i used to work for one of the largest community funders in the uk called the national lottery community fund and one day i was there and i saw a colleague throw his hands up uh, in the air uh, at the desk you know at dismay something on the computer so later on i asked him 
um, problems. And he said he just read a blog by another funder CEO talking about the importance of grant making. And he'd become really quite annoyed at what he characterized as blogs by the important people that were really high, uh, high level meditations on the nature of giving. When, as he said, there was this massive unmet need for really specific practical advice and support about how to do grant making well. So I thought about this a lot since and realized that he was right. Most of the books out there on grant making and philanthropy tend to be focused on engaging you know, billionaires and the CEOs and board members of their funders and about their concerns, which can be very different from those of sort of grant makers who work in these organizations day in, day out, making everything happen. So this kind of obsession with advice for people at that level uh, seems a bit odd, given how many people actually work as grant makers. So for example, there's only one Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation, but that funder has you know, hundreds of grant makers working there. So what Tom and I decided to try and do was develop some of this missing practical support for grant makers based on real life stories, advice and insights that help to answer key questions grant makers wanted to know answers to like, how can I make grant making more inclusive and equitable? How can I improve the experience of grant seekers and grantees? What's a good leader? How do I manage well? How do I keep developing my own skill? So in short, we've designed a book in the hope that it could be another useful tool that grant makers can turn to and dip in and out of when they're considering these kind of things. So Gemma said that there were two motivations though and only the first one was about serving this underserved group um uh, it's uh, it's not entirely about that the other motivation is that as Rodri you talk about quite often on this podcast traditional grant making is no secret to say um is sometimes pretty badly flawed and um both Gemma and I have felt strongly for some time that there are just some bad practices and some bad values that should just be stamped out of grant making that have no real role in our profession at all and as we interviewed lots and lots and lots of people for the book we just heard like so many kind of complaints about the things that aren't good about grant making that we could have really easily written like a a whole book on that if we wanted to do that sort of thing like problems like arrogance and discrimination and a disregard for evidence and a lack of empathy we heard these themes from many people not just outside funders but also inside funders again and again but if we just taken those problems and stuck them in a book it would have sort of been like a polemic and Gemma and I I guess we're solution oriented people. Maybe that's why we're sort of in the nonprofit field. What inspired us actually was that there are reformers who have emerged off the back of these complaints already. And uh, especially in the last decade, these reformers have bubbled up and they are starting to tackle problems of the kind that I just mentioned head on. And very often these reformers are people who are quite often hidden within grant making organizations themselves, the kind of the, the, the grant making grassroots, it were. And so we realized that by writing a book, we could not just point out the flaws and sort of grumble, but we could encourage and celebrate and support grant makers of the kind who either were reformers, who wanted to be reformers, to gain courage and to join the kind of reform movements that we can already see exist in the grant making world. And so the reason that modern grant making has that name, the the book is called Modern Grant Making, is because it's about how we can do better than traditional grant making and about how people already are doing better than traditional grant making. Yeah, absolutely. I should say my, my question up front about whether the, the world needed this book was was supposed to be tongue in cheek. Um, and I really, really like the book. And particularly, I think, as, as you were both saying there, um, that balance between kind of engaging with criticism and some of the big debates about philanthropy and sort of traditional modes of grant making, but remaining instead of sort of throwing our hands up in despair and giving up, actually kind of thinking, what can we do to address some of those and make grant making better, I think, you know, is the an approach that 
that appeals to me. Um, and certainly, you know, I spend a lot of my time doing some of that kind of higher level thinking about kind of philanthropy and, and hand-waving stuff. Um, but as a result, I quite often get asked, you know, okay, well, what does this mean in practice? And I feel spectacularly ill-qualified often to say. And one of the things I really, really liked about the book was that's precisely what it addresses is, okay, if you are actually a grant maker and you're interested in these debates and want to engage with them, what does that mean in terms of what you might do you know in your in your role uh, and there's lots of kind of practical advice and stories in there um i guess we sort of talked about what drove you to write the book i mean what what to give people a sense of what they might expect if they read it what's actually in there and kind of what are you trying to get people to do as a result of, of reading the book so so the book itself it's probably worth saying that it's very much been developed based on as you say Rodri, the real life experiences insights and tips of people working in grant making predominantly in the uk and the us and, and some in canada and also some in, in other parts of the world but it's really their stories that help to inform the kind of the content of it so the way that the book is structured is um we've kind of developed it to be modular so there's different chapters about different things you know what are modern grant making no-brainers how do i you know contribute to developing a good strategy what to do about power and privilege um how do i sort of manage well what to do about research and it's it's kind of developed so that any grant maker can access any part of the book at any time they don't have to read it you know, from start to finish, if you're very interested that day in, crikey, we're looking at overhauling our, um, you know, application process, if you have one, where you can turn to chapter six and look at that, you don't need to start, you know, at chapter one. Um, so it's been designed in that way. And then each of the chapters um, kind of follows a question, a question that we're sort of posing the reader or the reader is posing themselves, you know, how do I uh, make the application process better? And then we tackle that go through the process and at the end of each chapter or most of them there's a really practical checklist that people can take away and and use great tom do you do you want to pick up on that yeah so Gemma's done a great job there of um describing the, the fundamental fact that it's it's not really like a narrative but that you necessarily read from beginning to end it's more like you open you flick to the question that's troubling you in your job today and our our assumption is that most of the people reading this most of the grant makers are exhausted and stressed and troubled by something and so uh you know it's uh the, you you find the thing that's on your mind and you go straight straight to it. But that said, while it's absolutely really practical in in its you know ninety nine percent of it is this intensely practical stuff, it does have also um, this angle of values. It starts by saying there are some values that all grant makers should have, um, regardless of whether they make grants in arts or sciences. Despite how different that is, people grant makers should always be humble. Grant makers should always pay attention to equity. Grant makers should always pay attention to evidence. That sort of thing is all there up front. That's sort of like the backbone. And also um, the thing that's always true no matter what field you work in as a grant maker is we think you should always see yourself as a reformer of your profession you should acknowledge that it's not an un you know problematic profession and it's a profession that needs a bit of a kind of uh uh, a, a mini revolution in order to become what the world needs it to become and therefore we strongly encourage people to see themselves as reformers and to join in external groups communities movements and so th those are probably the values in the reform is is the one bit of it that means it's not just as a word it's not just a handbook that says like you know here's how to interview someone who's going to be a grant maker for example although it does do that yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's lots I want to pick up on in terms of the sort of specific themes within the book. I guess one big, big question there that goes to what you were, you were saying, Tom, is, you know, it often seems as though one of the big critiques of 
philanthropic organizations particularly and obviously you say in the book not all uh grant making bodies are philanthropic organizations but i guess that's sort of focusing on those they are to some extent often a reflection of the systems that are also causing the same problems that they're trying to address and so actually it often feels or some critics would say you know their ability to address those problems at a fundamental level is somewhat limited because they're symptomatic rather than something that can kind of drive transformational change did you get a sense from the people that you were talking to for the book that that is a tension that they feel that actually they're kind of working within these organizations and institutions because they want to address the problems but actually have concerns that the structures that that they're working within are making it difficult to have sort of fundamental uh, effect on those problems yes so a lot of people we spoke to did feel that tension very very keenly and you know some people ask questions quite openly in terms of well I'm working in grant making at the moment but should I be? Can you ever reform it enough, you know, in, in terms of what you've said? However, there, there are people that are, are trying are trying to do that. And I think you can see it in different ways. You can see people trying to reform more traditional or older philanthropic institutions. You know, you can take the John Element Foundation in the UK and Safina Ahmed is head, you know, heading that up and is, is doing a really interesting job in terms of looking back at their history, you know, thinking about their investments and, and, and thinking about the right way forward for them, given given their own uh, difficult history. But then you've also got new organisations, you know, like Resourcing Racial Justice, who are operating again in the UK in a very different way. So I think there's an appetite to try and reform grant making as much as much as is possible and to see how far we can take it. I think Tom and I would say that we haven't taken it, you know, as reformers as far as it could be taken. We don't know how how far we can change things and how far we can actually change the structures and whether we can rebuild them and remodel them, you know, in terms of changing the way investments are made, changing the way organisations work, changing who gets to make the decisions, who sits on the board, literally how the funding is designed, whether it is funding in the way that we traditionally know, or whether there's much more participatory approaches that, that can be adopted. So I guess we've written this book on modern grant making because we believe that not enough change has happened, even though lots of people are trying to reform things. And we want to celebrate and encourage and push that forward as much as possible. I think if there's a time that actually a lot more change has occurred and it seems like, well, structures are just too powerful, I think that's a different conversation, but I wouldn't say that we've done enough to know that right now. Yeah, we we noticed one thing as we uh, interviewed people, which is that probably the most common question that an like what you call it, an average grant maker has um, about their job across all funders is I've got to influence these people who sit in the hierarchy above me. Sometimes they are uh, you know board members because um, they could be like a government grant maker, like the kind that Gemma and I used to work for that has a board. Um, uh, very often, of course, in your world, Redry, it's private philanthropists and you may be influencing you know like a, a living donor who only made their money last last week as it were but the question how do I sort of like how do I make these people listen how do I persuade them of things is um quite probably the single question that plays across grant makers minds more than anything else and um while we admit that there isn't a magic bullet and you know if, if you're um let's say your board is completely obsessed by like funding retired racehorses then it is, probably is a bit tricky to persuade them to work on something else but but because our book's intensely practical and because we interviewed so many people we got and put in a bunch of tips so it's just stuff like um book in time to, to to kind of get to know your board members that are outside board meetings to quite a lot of grant makers basically only deal with their 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 board members within the constraint of a board meeting so they don't have any sort of relationship well 
make the time, you know, like in some way, shape or form, go and talk to them when there isn't a critical grant making decision that is sitting like a sort of radioactive nugget on the table in front of you. Um, we encourage uh, grant makers to use their organization's grant making strategies, which are hopefully good and well written, to use those as a kind of a lever to say, hey, you know, I know you're, you know, tremendous, you think it's really important as a board member that we do this, but if you'll just look at the strategy that we all just agreed, that you agreed like a few minutes ago, don't you think there's a bit of a tension here? Like, don't you think maybe we could do something a bit different? And and we also, you know, um, uh, I enormously admired um, uh, something I read about in the book on Atlantic philanthropies, about how um, as a way of um, managing a, a board that maybe is a bit more sort of like uh, difficult to handle. Uh, they set up a, um, a chairs fund so that essentially the chairman of the board, who in that case was like the main kind of billionaire philanthropist, so that that person could do absolutely whatever they felt like with, with, with cash without completely blowing up the whole strategy and without blowing up the budget because the money was just in different pots. It's a lovely, very human idea that's very realistic about like, you know, um, uh, to what extent we can kind of persuade other people of things. And so, um, uh, uh, yeah, like the... Um, the reforms are difficult and it's super easy to despair and just be, I'm like 24 years old and I'm at the bottom grade in my organization and the board is all made up of like, you know, dames and knights. What on earth can I do? And one of the key messages from all, because you can still, you can still influence, you can still, you know, you might not be able to reach into those people's heads and magically change their mind, but you can 100% do things, set up things, arrange things that will over time sort of like educate them, inform them, change them. Yeah, I mean, it seems as though, as with so many things, like there, a lot of it at the end comes down to sort of power and analysing where power sits and where there are sort of differentials in, in power. And it, it certainly struck me in reading the book that one of the problems, it seems, with traditional approaches to grant making is that there is a power differential between those people who are on the board, who are the founders of institutions and the people working for them who are tasked to kind of do the, the grant making. And too often, historically, when those grant makers have then interacted with the people who are the recipients of the grants, they have actually ended up amplifying that power differential between where the money came from and where it's supposed to be doing good, rather than seeing their role as reducing it as far as possible. And the, the really interesting thing about some of the new approaches that are going on, and, and Gemma, you mentioned earlier around sort of participatory methods and things, which I'm sure we can come on to talk to uh, later, is that actually the, those people in the middle seem to be taking the responsibility for trying to kind of close that gap as far as possible so that the you know more of the power trickles down do you think you know people working in the foundation world or the grant making world who are kind of thinking through these things you know is is power sort of a key lens that they should be applying to thinking about their role yeah we certainly um, suggest that's the case in the book and we, we heard that from an you know awfully lot of different people who, who we spoke to when developing it I think it's, it's sort of worth reminding ourselves kind of why are we doing what we're doing? What's the point of all of this? And I think, you know, what, what we recommend um, based on the views of lots of other people is it's meant to be or it should be more of a partnership endeavour. You know, grant makers, funding institutions, if there's no one to give any money to, what, yeah. they wouldn't necessarily <laughs> exist job, yeah. quite, quite in the same way. And so actually that there really should be uh, more of a focus on, on working in partnership. And when you start to look at things through that lens, then the notion of power, you can think about it slightly differently. So of course, if you're a funding institution, you have money, you want to give money to people. Oftentimes they want it, not always, depending on how strict your, <laughs> your kind of eligibility or your restrictions may be. And so it's a case of thinking about, right, okay, there is a power differential because there's, there's money involved. There can be other types of 
power involved. And But if you think about working in partnership, how can I balance that power? How can I think about sharing that power, giving away that power if it's appropriate? What works in terms of what we're trying to achieve together? And I think a place to start, as we talk about in the book, uh, chapter three on power and privilege, is just trying to understand you know, what privilege means. Um, it's not a bad thing if someone is more privileged than someone else. That's just life. But being able to at least acknowledge that, both in an institutional sense as working for a funding organisation and perhaps in a personal sense, helps you get closer to that real form of partnership that I was just talking about. So sort of acknowledging privilege, acknowledging the kind of power dynamics that are at play. You can be quite open about that and then building those conversations with your potential partners around whatever your grant making process is. You know, what are you looking to achieve? This is our strategy. How can we, you know, mutually beneficially work on something together rather than have a funder, you know, potentially bounce an organisation into doing something it doesn't want to do just because it thinks it's a good idea, which still happens too often. Or indeed a funder having, if they run an application process, having an application process that's so complicated and inaccessible that you're either on purpose or inadvertently really narrowing the pool of people that you'd be working with anyway. So I think it's just time really for everyone to start being even more open about power and privilege and have far less funder fragility. Boulay, who's obviously very well known kind of in the nonprofit space, think coined the term and, and through the development of the book, we actually heard a lot of stories about funder fragility, which seems to be getting in the way of people just acknowledging power and privilege and then working on those things together. So for anyone working in grant making, definitely have a look at kind of funder fragility and, and think about your own behaviours and how you can sort of avoid that. And if you you see it happening in your organization if you feel like you're able to perhaps kind of gently call that out and some of the things we've seen work quite well in funding institutions is just starting to have the conversations about power and privilege it seems kind of strange that it's still quite a novel thing in some funding institutions but it still is so I think even acknowledging that and kind of leading some of the literature about it and then thinking about practical steps that you can take to sort of build those more mutually beneficial conversations such as kind of listening that little bit more I think at the Hewlett Foundation has a really interesting thing for grant makers around kind of key behaviours and listening more is is one of them. And just, yeah, really taking into account at a very small level of your working as an individual, how does power and privilege play out in your day-to-day conversations with grant seekers and grantees and partners is a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like the focus. There's a whole focus in in one section of the book on on privilege and the need to to check privilege. And I thought that was really good because I think acknowledging that that's not necessarily an easy thing for people who see themselves as well motivated and probably are to to acknowledge one's own privilege. And you know, I I count myself as an extra. I tick most of the boxes for who are the most privileged people in society. And I think acknowledging that doesn't sort of get you entirely off the hook, but it's got to be a starting point. And it's yeah, it's not necessarily comfortable, but it's equally. I think doing it in a way that doesn't immediately switch towards becoming defensive is is crucial. Um, I'm pretty sure podcasters are top of the pile, Rodri. Yeah, well, (laughs) that was the main, that was the first box I was going to tick there. um, Another thing linked to that as well that you talk a lot about in terms of like a key characteristic of modern grant making is around humility. And I think that, you know, the need to to approach grant making with humility. And one of the things that struck me, and I know we we sort of talked about um, when when we chatted um, before doing the podcast is I'm really interested in the idea of kind of what what we think of as good you know being good at grant making because everybody wants to have a sense of kind of what makes them good at their job and somebody you know going to grant making wants to be like what what do I need to do to be a great grant maker and I think kind of historically again the problem has been that it's all about attributing the kind of the genius and the ideas and coming up with the solutions to the grant maker or to the funder themselves and that actually the idea that your role as a grant maker as far as possible is to sort of shift the money and the resources and the power down to the people in receipt of it and and largely to kind of you know fade into the background you're sort of left then asking yourself 
how do I judge my own worth? Do you, do you think we kind of need to rethink a bit the narratives about what makes for being a great grant maker? Tom, do you want to pick up on that? Um, yeah, I, I think that um, in the last kind of probably the last 15, 20 years, especially since the really big rise of um, strategic philanthropy and super um, uh, kind of uh, analytic um, philanthropy, uh, that there is no doubt um, that um, the idea that um, in some ways to be the kind of the perfect effective altruist is is equal to being the um, a successful kind of grant maker. But if our book has kind of any moral at all, it's that um, that success is not just as simple as did that particular grant choice make a big impact in the world. That, of course, is massively important. And, and you know, the reason that, that we say one of the five values of modern grant making is evidence is because we have to use evidence and use evaluation in the right way in order to know whether or not the grant we made made the world better, made it the same, or unfortunately, sometimes made, made it worse. But I think that that for a while now, we've had a narrative, which is that's the only thing that matters about grant making. And therefore, just as long as you let's say, you know, if you can be the person who can give the grant to the people in Oxford who produce the Oxford AstraZeneca kind of a vaccine later on, then in some ways, it doesn't matter how badly you behaved in the process, because you'll get your place in heaven, because you funded that amazing vaccine that, that stuck in other people's arms. And and um, for Gemma and I, uh, the point is, no, that really is not enough. You can still, you can do that. And you can immiserate people who work really hard for really good organizations you can do you can make a wonderful grant and at the same time you can destroy other organizations through careless kind of sloppy grant making you can also uh, perpetuate inequalities in society because you can do things like basically only make grants to other organizations run by people who sort of look and sound quite like you and who speak like you and have your same standards and uh, kind of spelling and punctuation and grammar and so on and so forth and yeah every now and then one of those might then go and become something like the vaccine that I have in my arm here which I'm extremely I'm very grateful for and I'm very grateful to the grant makers who who did it but that is not a rounded successful career if you've made those impactful grants and also sort of wasted people's time as thousands of people apply and only one person gets a grant and you've wasted hundreds thousands millions of hours that's not good behavior or if you've sort of instantiated things in your organization that basically make it more likely that society will continue to be unequal and like less likely it will become more equal that's also not good enough so yes the, the definition of success that is um, implicit in, in modern grant making is just enormously more rounded it's like absolutely the grants have to make impact and absolutely we have to know that but um, it's uh, it's now this multi-dimensional thing where we have to treat people super well and we have to be humble and so on and so forth. We have to have application forms that people can read easily and so on. And that when you do all of those things together, when you say no to people kindly and quickly and if, you know and clearly, when you publish your data online about which grants you made so that other people can see where you made your grants and who got them and so on, when you publish your evaluations showing that some of your grants were successful and unsuccessful, when you do all of those things, then you can can sit back and maybe think that you're a successful grant maker but if you are as it were just uh, like a ruthless effective altruist who basically behaves like pretty kind of muckily the rest of the time in our view you're not a modern grant maker and you're not really a successful grant maker either 
Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. I think the need to kind of contextualise grant making and philanthropy more broadly and see it in the round, you know, in terms of how wealth is created, how it's invested, other practices is is absolutely crucial. I, I, I'll i come to you in a second, Gemma. I was going to just, just build on that because something you, you touched on there, um, Tom, is around, you know, the, the danger that you can perpetuate inequities um, merely through the sort of uh, the processes that you use in grant making. Um, and we touched on it before as well. Um, one thing I wanted to pick up on is the idea of kind of grant making relationship to diversity because i think you know one of the things you clear on in the book that it should be part of the the requirements you know as with all other walks of life as as far as i'm concerned that that we should seek to to minimize um uh kind of racial inequalities and seek to kind of maximize diversity and particularly with something like grant making to make sure that actually these institutions reflect the people and communities that they're supposed to be serving as far as possible at the moment in terms of the people who are working in grant making do you think there is an imbalance i mean does grant making currently have something of a diversity problem so the numbers you probably already know rodri uh you know they're things like 99 percent of foundation board members in the uk being white which doesn't exactly reflect british society in the us it's 90 percent white definitely doesn't reflect american society but um we think um uh the, the 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 diversity issue is actually it's it goes beyond the question of just simply who has the jobs who's on the board there are these other dimensions and I'm actually going to hand over to to Gemma because I know she's got some interesting things to say about like the really unexpected ways that um uh, that the way that funders behave can kind of manifest what you call just then a diversity problem I think that it is important to acknowledge that people that sit on boards you know in leadership positions just doing grant making day to day they obviously impact on how the organization works and how it operates both the culture as well as some of the you know processes that it has in place so we've talked already a bit about um, if you have an application form or indeed if you're invite only the way that the way that you operate how transparent you are or not this also impacts on this issue of how inclusive you are as an organization how accessible how much are you contributing to trying to deal with structural inequality how um, representative are you of society so sometimes the diversity um, kind of issue does get very focused on who's on boards and that's really important because these people make lots of decisions but it's also reflected in things like how you design your whole funding process right and so um one of the, the conversations we had with an anonymous grant maker in the book was that they had an issue where they realised after about a year that applications um, coming in from disabled led groups had hugely dropped. But nobody had noticed that for a long time, which is an issue of itself in terms of the data, although they finally had a conversation about it. And when they started to dig, in it, dig into it more deeply, they realised that their sort of whole application process and indeed grant management process was deeply inaccessible. The website had issues, the online application form had issues, hadn't been co-designed or developed with, with, with disabled people at all. And so disabled people are just kind of opted out of the process, dropped out of the process, and they didn't have effective feedback loops to understand what was happening. And so it's, you know, so much time later, somebody quite junior said, well, hang on a minute, look at look at this. Nobody else had noticed it at a strategic level. Uh, and I think that's really shocking and, and completely unacceptable. You know, if you're a funder and you have a website, you probably should have a website unless there's very good reason for it. There are a few exceptions. Make sure it's accessible. Make sure your whole process is accessible and work with people to help co-design that and, you know, pay them if that's appropriate, pay kind of disabled led groups to give you feedback and advice on that. So sometimes we get a bit fixated at the, sort of the top level, but actually there's so many things to do with grant making that can actually be very exclusive or exclusionary. And so the way you operate in your grants is one, but the people making decisions is another. And so that's why we think it's really exciting that there's a particular focus on participatory grant making at the moment. I know you had uh, Meg Massey and Hannah Patterson 
on quite recently. Uh, obviously, uh, Meg has co-written a book on uh, participatory uh, funding called Letting Go, which we think is really brilliant. I think what's quite interesting to note uh, briefly about participatory funding or grant making is that it's not necessarily a new thing. You know, there are a range of organisations that have actually been set up to do this from the start. You know, the Disability Rights Fund is one example. And I think we do need to acknowledge these organisations and say they've been doing it for a long time and we should seek to learn from them. But then it's also really exciting, you know, some of the new organisations that are sort of springing up. I, I mentioned Resourcing Racial Justice, but there, there are a lot of others. A Trans Justice Fund kind of globally uh, is really interesting how they work. And so I think you know, one way of kind of trying to deal with uh, grant making being not necessarily transparent, not necessarily that diverse or inclusive, is to think about who makes decisions on the money. But then, as we've spoken about earlier in the podcast, I do think there is this tension. You know, there are people in leadership positions, there are people sitting on boards, uh, CEOs, who aren't necessarily contributing in the right way to actually dealing with this. And so I think there's a bit of lip service that still goes on. Uh, when it comes to diversity and inclusion and you know being frank that just really irritates me uh, where you have uh, organizations that's almost become kind of like you can kind of pretend pretend that you're doing it but when you look at you know a funder strategy if they have one uh, you realize that there's actually no meaningful targets in there and nothing's changed over the last few years and none of the data is actually open and transparent so I think funders really need to step up they need to not just talk about this if they're talking about it all some aren't even talking about it but they need to really start to think about uh, the actions that they're taking and that that's about not just who sits on the board but it's about who makes decisions it's about where the money goes you know comic relief in the uk is working with hashtag charity so white to think about how they can um, not just have commitments but make more action give more money to anti-racist work and we think it's that practical action that we need to hear more about less talking less silence more doing yeah, absolutely. And I, did, I should say there's a, you know, I found a very sort of blackly funny bit in the book about, you know, a sort of bad version of a diversity approach from a, from a grant maker based around a, a series of trustees just before the run up to lunch, having a, a single session on it and all being somewhat distracted, which I, which felt uh, sort of uh, un, unpleasantly realistic, I thought. But um, and I'm sure that sort of stuff happens uh, far too often, because as I say, I think it's we've got to the point, at least we've got to the point where everybody feels like they need to engage and have an opinion on diversity and inclusion I think the danger is if we don't go from that to everybody feeling like they actually need to do something practically to make sure that their systems and structures and approach reflects that in a meaningful way then then it all is just hot air um you touched there on on participatory approaches I just wanted to pick up on that a bit more because it's something I'm really interested in and talked to quite a few people on the podcast about in the context of your sort of wider interest in in modern grant making how big a part do you see participatory approaches playing? I mean, do you, do you think in some sense that we should be aiming for all, you know, grant making to be participatory to some extent or another? Or do you think it's kind of one tool in a, in a wider toolkit? Yeah, OK. Um, I think there's a bit of debate around this. I don't actually think there's, there's a right or wrong answer. I mean, from our perspective, I suppose Tom and I would say... Um, that uh, more organisations should certainly consider it. I think there's some elements of science funding where it, it may not be quite appropriate. Um, so it's probably worth stating that. But I think more of the issue is not whether everybody should be doing it. It's more how can you actually do it well or how can you start to learn more about it? And so one of the things that we talk about in the book um, relatively briefly around this is actually how can you just get going and get going in a meaningful way uh, quite practically and actually learn from people that have done it before learn from some of the bear traps to make sure that it doesn't actually you know accidentally become tokenistic or something that's kind of tagged on to sort of governance processes that actually don't really allow for genuine kind of participatory funding um 
so so one of the things we really like about um uh, Meg Massey and Ben Rubble's book Letting Go is that they talk about you know sort of the values and theory behind it but also you really need to think about the process it's all about the process it's all about the, the structure how how the actual decision making is made who's involved how you support them in a, in a, in a really genuine way um and so I think it's more about funders trying that but trying it in a way that is genuine and well supported and um well funded and and learning and taking it from there yeah tom the it's quite these days because participatory grant making is um is growing so quickly and people are so excited it, it's actually possible to not see that there are a few different kind of radical ways in which uh, people are thinking of how you might give out money in ways which doesn't necessarily involve a big board of big people making big big choices and I think one of my absolute favorite because it's just so surprising and sort of like some people shocking but really interesting is the exploration in science grant making and Gemma mentioned before that science grant making is probably like the least promising place for um for, for classic participatory grant making because it's a bit difficult to go out, you know, into my street here outside my house and my community where I love everyone on my street and go, shall we talk about which kind of protein folding problem to solve? It's like, you know, it's not that's not really super mm, realistic, yeah, yeah. right? But in science, we're seeing um experiments in random grant making, which is the most like subversive possible idea where where um uh scientists put in you know bids to to funders and they are doing experiments at the moment in more than one country of then awarding the grants completely at random pretty much i think after maybe some basic criteria are checked to make sure that you know the people submitting actually are scientists and are not just you know fraudsters or something but uh, and the idea there is it's it's a different approach to the question of maybe institutional decision making boards in things like the national science foundation maybe they're not quite as great as they seem maybe we should maybe we should at least see whether or not handing things out a bit more randomly leads to money going maybe to some less prestigious places maybe it turns out the places that were really prestigious and have fancy university names maybe they're not actually so much better at, at making scientific discoveries uh, we also came across one um foundation at one point uh, for a different model that simply made grants automatically of a small size to to people who submitted proposals of a relatively modest size again i think there was a little like do you really exist um are you a fraudster but beyond that it's just like as long as you got through the door it's like here you go i think it is really lovely that uh, because every one of these examples whether it's random or that one you saw a participation these are signs that the reform wave of grant makers is a real thing. And the reason I say that is because if there was no reform wave, if everyone out there was, as it were, a relatively traditional, had a relatively traditional view that we're all jolly highly educated and we spent a jolly long time thinking about this and that means we are the best people to make this grant making um, choice. If that was just completely ubiquitous, no one would be signing off participatory experiments. No one would be signing off randomized experiments. I think what we're seeing is that there is some real humility that is like um, growing up amongst grant makers in lots of different places. Uh, and I think it's tremendously exciting. And those those people who are doing those things behind the scenes, you know, those are what I think of as modern grant makers because, you know, they are starting from their humility and then they're moving on from that. And I think, yeah, it's really interesting. I think things like you know, randomised grant making are fascinating. And and I guess putting that alongside, you know, participatory approaches or things like, you know, direct cash transfers, to me, it seems like at the very least, even if you don't think any of them is the answer in itself or going to be the whole picture, they are at the very least a benchmark to say, 
okay, if, let's do this. And if, if this produces better results than what we were doing before, we should probably ask some questions about why we were doing it that way. Um, you know, I have to think of direct cash grants. If it turns out they're just giving people the money and letting them make decisions about what to do with it, you know, produces better results than massive international aid programs. Well, that's an interesting lesson learned, isn't it? And it probably won't in all instances, but it does kind of provide you with a yardstick. Uh, one thing I want to ask, actually, in terms of all these things that we're talking about here, there's lots of kind of, you know, changes that you've identified that are they're already going on to some extent and more that sort of need to happen. What impact has the has the pandemic had on that? Because, I mean, I've, I've talked to lots of people who said, actually, there have been lots of changes made through necessity in grant making organisations and funders uh, towards things like shifting towards um, uh, funding core costs or kind of funding over longer timescales and that sort of thing or reducing grant making application processes. You know, are some of these things going in the right direction? And do you think they're actually going to stick in the longer term or, or have accelerated some of these positive changes? Gemma? Yeah, so I think we're seeing some evidence in the UK and the US in particular, the different kind of studies that have been done that grant makers, a lot of them did change, you know. So um, there was a there was a big change to actually loosening of restrictions. You know, there was a study done by, I think, the Centre for Effective 57% of funders that took part in a survey actually, you know, made grants unrestricted. Uh, following kind of the, the start of COVID. So I think there have been changes. What we're also starting to hear more about now is kind of returning to type. So I think the question is not so much did grant makers change. I think a lot did, not everyone, but a lot did. It's more about well, what's happening now. And actually, if you can make um, grants with, with fewer restrictions and you can actually, um, you know, support grantees in terms of their development as well as their kind of direct delivery, and you can actually be more flexible in terms of what you expect them to then share with you around things like monitoring and evaluation, those things are, you know, obviously possible. You've done them. So I think there needs to be some questions asked more routinely in a kind of a strategic level. We've done these things. Do we really need to actually go back to what we were doing before? Was that the best way of achieving change with these partners? Just because it's actually maybe a bit more operationally easy for us, maybe, um, and it's more to do with how our systems are set up. That doesn't mean in any way that we should continue to do it. So I think it's more about where do we go from here? And there are some really, really interesting organisations that had already made the move from more of a restricted way of working to unrestricted actually before the pandemic. So the Peter Cundell Foundation is one of them. And I think sharing stories of organisations that have actually made that move could help others to kind of deepen and in sort of embed uh, different ways of working rather than just seeing it as a kind of time limited window because there was an emergency or well, there still is. So I think sharing more of those stories about practically what is it exactly that we did? We didn't just have a board meeting and make a decision. What have we actually had to do in terms of our application process or our grant making process, how we kind of communicate, how we work with people, the information we share, how we kind of support, you know, grant seekers and grantees on their budgets if we're working in a more unrestricted way, all these really practical things that are like levels below making the actual decision to strategically change. I think we need to talk about more of those and share more of those so that we can encourage funders not to kind of necessarily return to what they were doing before. Uh, yeah, and as I would, I just make the plea to people just, to, you know, within their organisations, if they see this happening, just to ask the question why. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, I don't know if there's anything you want to follow up on on that one, or I'll, I've got lots of other questions and I'm aware that I'm in danger of taking up far too much of your time. <laughs> just building ever so slightly on Gemma saying, you know, just ask the question why. I, I've said repeatedly that that we believe there's a, you know, there is a reform movement bubbling, but it isn't necessarily triumphant. Yeah, if it was, to some extent, maybe we wouldn't even have to write this book necessarily, at least not from the reformist angle. And so I think that the to be a, 
a grant making reformer who's maybe in the you know the middle ranks of a funding organization today can feel a bit lonely and stressful and if you are the one person thinking oh god like you know it was so good we moved to unrestricted and now the board's like moving straight back that can be a pretty stressful and lonely place and some of the people listening might be feeling like that right now that the main message i suppose is is twofold the first is you're not alone even if you're alone in your organization even if you're the only person today who is saying we really should keep going forward and not go back to kind of the comforting versions of the past then there are other people in other organizations so if you join something in the uk like grant givers movement um or or, uh you know um something else in in the us then um uh you'll find people who will just kind of give you courage to have potentially difficult conversations and you know then the second thing is um to say the part of the reason we wrote a book is precisely so that you can show it to people it's it's so that you can go like you know i don't think maybe we should like start doing this again because look this thing's just out and it suggests that's not a good practice and that's not what the future looks like so um yeah maybe maybe people might find the the, the book is sort of a, a a lever they can use especially if they feel on their own yeah, I mean, certainly from from a slightly different perspective in terms of the world of, of philanthropy, I know, you know, a lot of people end up having, you know, thinking through the same questions with themselves around things like power and kind of, you know, where wealth comes from and all this sort of stuff. But actually to realise there are other people thinking about them now and who've thought about them historically is hugely comforting, actually, to realise you're not alone and that you're not kind of discovering these things and you're the only one. Actually having that sense of a network with other people who are you know, like-minded, I think is is hugely reassuring. I just wanted to, to come on to a couple other things. One was around, you know, you touched on it before around evidence. And one of the things that you you make sort of clear is is a crucial part of being a modern grant maker is making sure that you do have an appropriate focus on evidence. And I use the word appropriate there advisedly, because what I wanted to ask was, how does that square with some of what we've discussed around making sure that as a grant maker, you don't perpetuate um, sort of iniquities and inequalities? Because it, it strikes me me that evidence is obviously important you want to know why you're doing what you're doing and that it is actually having the effect that you want but there's also a danger in that if you don't allow for the full breadth of different types of evidence or who gets to decide what counts as evidence you know is sort of set to a, to a certain group of people that introduces a power dynamic so what for you is the sort of appropriate way of of approaching the idea of using evidence in grant making Great question with a few different um, angles to it there. So, I mean, the first thing to say is that we understand that evidence, you know, in itself is a contested contested term. I think the focus for the book is uh, particularly the chapter, chapter seven on, on research from a grant maker's perspective is actually how can you use it, understand it, commission it in a way that um, works for you and actually is equitable. It's not necessarily an act of generosity to leave a kind of smaller charity with no evidence base, right? Um, and there are there are some issues uh, we, we say um, in the book about, about sort of research and evidence. And, and one of them is the idea that actually everybody's sort of marking their own homework and that's partly the funder's fault because you know, often you have a slice of budget put aside for monitoring and evaluation, and it's kind of up to the, the grantee to, to sort that out, which doesn't necessarily help them and can actually be a conflict of interest. And so we've got some advice in there about you know, how you could actually manage that. We've also got some very practical advice in the book around you know, making grant decisions and designing programs. How do you actually access useful, reliable evidence, all different types, as you say, Rodri, not just you know, RCTs, all different types of evidence that might be appropriate for your organisation and the kind of work that you're doing and the kind of decisions that you're making too often we heard from uh, grant makers that actually it's just not expected in their organization to even look at kind of research and evidence around some of the decisions they were making you just look at the grant 
you know, proposal, and you might look at what you've made before, but actually the idea of looking at a kind of wider evidence base, or indeed, you know, talking to experts, uh, talking to people, you know, community experts, if it was something that's very place-based, you just didn't have time to do it. It's not baked in, it's not expected. Nobody kind of, your uh, line manager, person you report into, doesn't talk to you about anything like that. You've had no training, you've had no support. So totally agree that there can be all different types of kind of inequitable ways of kind of collecting evidence and doing research and as I mentioned we do we do talk about that but actually there seems to be other issues around there's kind of potentially this superficial expectation that lots of grant makers kind of use research too much but actually we found that maybe they don't use it enough interestingly so there's practical advice in there about that and then there's just other things you know uh, in terms of, of critiques of funders and grant makers around make sure that you're asking for stuff that you really need and you really use and if it's valuable you know please make the effort to share that we heard from far too many grant makers that they'd been asked to kind of submit these bespoke you would have heard this a million times bespoke kind of monitoring and evaluation reports maybe they got an email back from the grant manager saying cheers thanks for this never hear anything again am i allowed to swear on the podcast <laughs> yeah go for it yeah. Uh, and I think one person said, you know, that's bullshit. And it is. Yeah. So it's kind of like not only, you know, maybe not enough research is being used in the right way. We're passing the buck in terms of expecting those that we make grants to to make difficult decisions about how they can actually gather evidence that helps them and the wider sector about what they're doing and whether it's working or not. But then worse, you know, we're asking people to fill in loads of bespoke things that, you know, people don't, didn't necessarily read. I heard another story of a funder that had an organisation that uh, had this thing that they called the cupboard of love, which was basically like a stack of paper reports that no one ever read so yeah there's lots of things that need to change inequitable practices is really important but it, it, it's definitely not the only thing what one striking um thing about researching evaluation and the way it was done across grant makers is in certain domains you get certain types of, of uh, largely scientifically minded grant maker who and if you follow that grant maker and then follow the things they fund you will find lots of papers going we tried this we made this grant we did this thing and it didn't work and you'll find that very very often if people are funding you know drug trials for example and increasingly around things um, that are treated increasingly scientifically, like the question of um, to what extent children learn from different learning interventions in school or the uh, extent of um, different re-offender programs for people who've kind of left prison and, and so on. Those things, you will find there's a direct line where you can go to, for example, an online research repository and you will find pretty robust stuff that goes, this thing reduced re-offending by 7%, this, re you know, this, this other thing actually increased re-offending by 5%. That's really there. But those seem to be like a self-selecting family of funding institutions that see themselves and have quite a strong identity of kind of being scientific in sort of air quotes. What was then really interesting to us is we went looking for where what you might call just like non-scientific funders, including pretty big ones with famous names, um, to just, we went just digging for evaluation reports on grants that were just unsuccessful grants, right? And that where you could just find, them. you could find them online, you could find them without having a friend of a friend of a friend in a, inside a funder somewhere. And we name a couple of cases where we were able to find them. So kudos to the Gates Foundation, like they, 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 um, uh, said that one of their, I think, education interventions that cost them $500 million didn't work. And they got stick in the newspapers for it. So, you know, kind of well done for trying. Um, uh, Hewlett Foundation, ditto, they they have a similar, uh, didn't work. But wow, the number of like 
biggish foundations and government funders that are not so scientifically sort of like cultural where we just as we look we just couldn't find a thing saying here's a project we funded that didn't work it was really revealing because it was clear that like they're probably were there probably had been plenty of grants that hadn't worked that's just life right but um for whatever reason and the reason is probably politics and paranoia and maybe a degree of arrogance either the studies weren't being done in the first place or they were being done then they were being looked at and buried because someone somewhere felt that it wasn't good for their career and uh, and so um we make a really kind of impassioned plea as part of our general plea towards using evidence and being transparent which is it is such good behavior if you can if you get a grantee approaching you're like okay we're going to help you get a really high quality independent evaluation that is not going to have a conflict of interest where you know the person doing the research has to say the project was successful uh when if it wasn't and then secondly we're going to make this public in some way that that hopefully can be done that there's you know not going to like blow up the fate of the NGO and make it unfundable or you know ruined and so on but fundamentally it is really really morally important we do that because every day that 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 goes past where those kinds of studies are not published is a day where grant makers are sitting in offices literally right now around the world just about to make a grant for a thing that we definitely didn't work and they don't know and they don't know because either the study doesn't exist or more likely the study does exist and is sitting on someone's hard drive unpublished and it is so morally urgent to realize that if you have an evaluation report that says this thing didn't work it is so morally important to make sure other people can get hold of that it's like it's hard to even state how how like key that is i wonder if to some extent that's a, a flip side of what we were talking about earlier in terms of what constitutes success in grant making in that we don't have a good understanding of what we how we should understand failure in grant making and that the idea of making a grant that turns out not to be effective is seen as somehow a failure and something that needs to be hidden or covered up whereas actually if we properly understand the role of grant making if to some extent it is to take risks and to try and innovate and do things that, that others can't do precisely because of the nature of the the resources available trying something and it not working isn't a failure as long as you share that information with other people it's actually you know a different kind of of success did, did you see it was something I wanted to ask about in terms of that idea of kind of risk and, and innovation you know do you think that is a kind of crucial part of the role of grant making organizations particularly philanthropic ones I know this is something you, you sort of touch on in the book um, and do you think they understand that or do you think actually too many of them in the end because of a fear of failure end up playing it safe we've written the book for grant makers at, at diff, both philanthropic organizations and government funders and corporate funders, and they all have different environments. Early on, we actually thought maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we should just write it for one type or another. But then we realized that despite the fact that, you know, a private foundation and a government funder seeming from the outside to be profoundly different, so much of the bureaucracy is the same. You've still got to have nice conversations. You've still got to make applying easy. You've got to have good grant management. Like there's so many things in common that we decided to write one book that, um, uh, that that's about all of them, even though we know they're different. And probably the single way that we know that they are different, especially philanthropy and government funding, is the nature of, of risk, right? Which is that um, uh, governments simply uh, are not politically allowed to take certain kinds of risk. They're also, uh, not only are they not allowed to take certain kinds of risk because the public will come along and sort of punish them for doing a thing that seems terribly foolish, but um, uh, they um, uh, there are also areas of um, investment they just can't make for basically kind of political reasons. So, um, you know, if, if there is a, a law 
uh, let's say, you know, there is a law of the land, doesn't matter what it is, it makes something illegal. Even if 95% of the people in a country think it's bad, right? If it's, you know, kind of widely condemned as a bad and old fashioned law, basically government grant makers fundamentally still can't fund kind of campaigning to have that law overturned. It's just like, it's just one of those conflict of interest things that can't, can't happen, uh, let alone things that are much more contentious and that might be sort of like dividing society um, down the middle. So back to philanthropy, what this means is given that, that the government funders, which are, let's be clear, the government funders are much bigger than the philanthropic funders when you add them all up. Like uh, um, a government funding is easily, it starts at estimates at 10 times greater than philanthropy. And the truth is it's probably much bigger than that, right? Uh, that means that, that every philanthropist needs to think, wow, there are just some really important, socially important things out there that the government can never do no matter how urgent they are. And given that the government can't do those things, we think it is really important that, that pretty much all private philanthropists and indeed philanthropic organizations always ask themselves, is my portfolio of grants and giving, is it just 100% things the government could do? Or does it have some segment of things the government can't do? And if you look at your grant portfolio and it's entirely things that the government could do, so it's entirely running food banks and running schools and offering some kind of medical clinic, then um, at that point, you've really got to ask the question of whether you're using your kind of competitive advantage to the max, because you're in that case, you're not spending any money, for example, on helping make sure that the government runs the clinics and pays for them well with its massively superior amounts of money and kind of legal power. And so, um, yeah, so, so probably the main thing that relates specifically to philanthropy and, and risk is that idea that, that you should be regularly checking your portfolio to make sure you haven't accidentally slipped into a comfort zone where basically what you're doing is sort of like being a tiny, tiny, tiny government, giving money in, in a society within an enormous, enormous government that's basically drowning everything you do in more money. It's, uh, that's, that's one of our kind of main pieces of advice. But I'm going to hand over to Gemma, who's, I think, got other things to say. Yeah. So, but, but, but what can go wrong? Any kind of, we, we, as we've discussed, funders come in all shapes and sizes. You know, you can have one philanthropist, you can have, a, you know, 0.5 of a person working for a family foundation. You can have funders with hundreds and hundreds of people. Sometimes, you know, the word innovation can make people kind of heckles rise and <laughs> feel quite uncomfortable because if you've been um, a grant seeker and a grantee, sometimes the word innovation comes with some negative connotations. Now, Tom just talked there about kind of um, risk, I think at a kind of more macro scale, even if you're thinking about an individual person or, or, or kind of funders portfolio, which I think is really helpful. But sometimes within funders, the idea of taking a risk can be sort of connected to innovation, which can then be connected to this notion of kind of doing something new, you know, a new project, a new thing, rather than thinking kind of on a, a much bigger, kind of deeper scale at a systems kind of level and thinking about what, what are we trying to achieve? What can we, what can we do with the way we can operate that as Tom said governments can't do sometimes it gets pushed all the way down to a single grant level and you know it's either good that you're trying something new and it's bad maybe that you want follow-on funding to continue to do something that maybe is working very well making a big difference to people you know we think that's deeply unhelpful and that funders again have a responsibility no matter their shape and size to take it up a level and think about their strategy and think about what they're doing and how the grant making process can support that and support people they're ultimately uh, working with to make a difference and not think of innovation as this kind of maybe a bit old-fashioned notion now of it's good if you're trying something new because 
new isn't necessarily better than something that's been proven to be effective already. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that idea that actually doing something has been proven to be effective, but that isn't getting the appropriate funding at the moment is actually a form of innovation is really important. As you say, actually, if innovation is, is equated, if risk taking is equated with innovation, and that's equated with everything needs to be shiny and new, that in itself is, is sort of hugely problematic mindset or can be. But guys, I'm aware that I'm in danger of running far too long here. And I could talk about this stuff, frankly, all day. I'm going to let you go in a minute. But before I do, I just want to give you a chance, you know, are there any kind of you know what have you got coming up next in terms of the book coming out and plans for it and are there any kind of final thoughts that you want to leave people with so the book is out now and if you'd like to learn more about it you can go to moderngrantmaking.com uh, which has got specific information about what's in each of the chapters yeah so we as well as the fairly obvious thing that we, we are selling the book and we're going to be talking about it in other places. One thing that's been really nice is we've been organizing online events in which we basically ourselves sort of interview and celebrate people who we think really kind of live up to the idea of modern grant manifest these values like service and diligence and equality and equity and so on. And those events are going to be kind of ongoing. We are not, don't worry, Rodri, we're not planning to run a new podcast forever, <laughs> but for the kind of the next six or nine months, um, we'll just be doing events that didn't support the book and we've already had some super interesting people and there will be some some more super interesting people to come but really i think the key thing we'll be doing is just trying to encourage everyone to realize that there is a reform movement out there within grant making for grant makers of any level senior or junior and we'll be encouraging people to see themselves as people who are not just grant makers but who are grant making reformers and ultimately that's the that's the real moral of everything we've done the book the the book is dedicated it opens and just says to the reformers and so what we're going to be doing for the next few months is trying to make sure that the reformers know that they are appreciated and make sure that everyone else uh, uh, knows what they're doing so that they can choose to become a reformer too. Great. A great note on which to leave it. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to, to the website and the book and, you know, any kind of upcoming events you guys have got. I definitely recommend that people, uh, you know, have enjoyed this conversation, go and seek out a copy of the book because it's, you know, really, apart from anything else, it's a really enjoyable read, which is not always true of books in this area, even if there's good information, but it's very, very readable um, and really, really interesting. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Just to say thanks ever so much to both of you for finding time to come on the podcast. Uh, it's been great to have a chance to chat and all the best with uh, all the plans over the coming months. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Gemma and Tom for coming on the podcast. It was great to have a chance to chat to them. I will put links in the show notes to where you can find the book and the website for Modern Grant Making and some details of the kinds of events that Gemma and Tom are working on at the moment. Um, if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy uh, if you like stuff that's more about the kind of theory and history of philanthropy. Um, if you've got ideas for other people I could talk to on the podcast or topics we could cover, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next time. Bye!